Today's episode of the Stallside Podcast was brought to you by Rudin Riddle Veterinary Pharmacy. Brian, how are you doing today? It's a great day, Peter. How are you today? I am good, thanks. Yeah, uh, interesting guests on the show today. Very topical. It, it is great. Uh, we've got Emma Adam, who's one of my favorites, coming back to us today. I understand she has a guest with her today. Yeah, absolutely. Chris Delay from Plant Science at UK is going to come and have a little bit of a talk to us about tall fescue and the um, endophyte intoxication that this grass actually suffers. Yep, and it's one of the things we talk about in Kentucky a little bit more, but it's it's just because I think we recognize the problem, we have the resources, um, but certainly a problem that uh, is not just a, a Kentucky problem. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, anywhere this grass grows, this is going to be a problem. I think people probably don't realize it's a problem because it's a pretty insidious thing. You know, problems occur in late pregnancy, but perhaps there's problems throughout pregnancy that we're not picking up on. Yep. And this grass is very good at surviving because it has this endophyte. Right. But that is the problem. It has the endophyte. It is the problem. So let's learn a bit more. So on yeah. stall side today, we have uh, Dr. Emma Adam and we have Chris DeLay. They're going to talk about tall fescue and endophyte intoxication. Dr. Adam, welcome back to stall side. Thank you very much, Pete. Bob, it's lovely to be back. It's great to have you back with us. Yeah, and we have another guest today, uh, Chris Delay. Would you like to talk a bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, first, thank you all very much for having me here. Um, I am native from uh, West Texas, came here for the Kentucky Coin Management Internship Program um, back in 2007 and fell in love with industry and never left. I've spent the last 13 years working in forage extension at the University of Kentucky, um, working with horse farms to improve pasture management. Okay, so what would you like to highlight for us today? So today, I believe we're going to be talking about fescue in horse pastures, how to manage that fescue, how to protect our mares against fescue toxicity, and, and so on. Well, this is something people talk a lot about, but I think they tend to gloss over the details. So could you walk us through exactly how this problem comes about, you know, what is involved in creating this problem, and just generally an, an overall view of how you try to manage your way around this? Sure, absolutely. So fescue is a, a naturalized grass within this area, although it's not native to this area. Um, and most wild type or naturally occurring tall fescue has an endophyte in it. So that's a fungus that lives in between the cell walls of the plant. And that endophyte produces um, ergot alkaloid compounds, okay? And some of those compounds are beneficial for the plant. It makes that plant really tough. It makes it disease resistance, pest resistance, grazing tolerance, those kinds of things. But it also produces some other compounds that can be toxic to livestock. So we see a lot of negative effects on cattle. Um, and as we're here to talk about today, we also see those in horses. And so our, our most common symptoms of fescue toxicity in horses is gonna be prolonged gestation, late-term abortions, low or no milk production, and thickened and retained placentas. And all of those things can add up to be pretty detrimental and can ultimately result in the loss of the foal and or the mare. Yeah, and that's something that we should all be concerned about, But um, and we'll get to that. But stepping back a little bit, I have this lovely pasture of grass. When I'm looking out on that, what am I going to see that gives me the idea that, hey, I might have a fescue situation here? As far as like looking at the yep. grass. Looking at the pasture. Okay, yep. so, so, so first of all, if you're in Kentucky... There's a very good chance that you have fescue. In fact, if you're in the entire southeastern United States, there's a very good chance that you have fescue. It's a very dominant grass. It's very widespread. Um, and so if you look specifically at the grass, it's a bunch type grass. It has a very dark color to it. It has a really rough texture. So if you slide your fingers down the leaf, um, you're actually going to feel the edges are serrated and they'll actually cut your fingers if you do it enough. And so when we sample fescue, by the end of the day, we'll have a bunch of little paper cut type things on our hands. Um, and so that's that's what it's going to look like. Whereas some of our other orchard gra or other grasses 
orchard grass is going to be very soft. It's going to have more of a pale green color. And our bluegrass is going to be a very fine bladed grass, um, much smaller in stature and thickness. And it'll also have that deep green color. Okay. So you have this pasture, you have fescue. What um, What's going to happen to that pasture seasonally? How's it going to look? How's it going to respond? How's that grass going to stand out from the other grasses? Because you mentioned it was a fairly tough, hardy grass. Mm-hmm. So how does the pasture look through the year? What are you going to see? Okay. So first of all, all three of those grasses, orchard grass, bluegrass, and fescue, are all cool season grasses. So what that means is that they grow best in the cool parts of the year, so in the springtime and again in the fall. And they are dormant in the winter, and they often go dormant or have very low uh, growth during the summertime. So what we're going to see is a huge explosion of growth in the springtime around late April through May. Um, And that's going to vary a little bit with species. So bluegrass comes on a little earlier than fescue does. Um, And then they're all going to slow down again in the summertime when it gets really hot and dry. And then they're going to pick up again in the fall. But we typically don't see as much of a growth um, in the fall as we would in the spring. Um, Because fescue is more tolerant of varied conditions, it's going to be green longer into the summertime and more active longer into the summertime than, say, bluegrass, which is very heat and drought sensitive. Um, We're also going to see fescue surviving deeper into the winter and being active deeper into the winter, and it's also going to green up earlier in the springtime, although it may um, may not be growing as tall quite as early, but it'll be active for a much longer period of time throughout the year compared to those other grasses. And a lot of that is because of that endophyte that gives it that extra durability compared to those other grasses. So I've got this nice green pasture at the times of the year you've talked about, which means fescue is active. Mm-hmm. How does um, the way I manage that pasture alter that fescue grasses potential to cause a problem yeah so a couple of different ways and and part of it is seasonally related and part of it's just straight up how we manage it so the endophyte lives at the base of the plant in the bottom couple of inches Um, and so when we talk about the toxic compounds that are produced specifically ergovaline is the one that we're looking at we're going to find a really high concentration of that in the bottom two inches of the plant when the plant goes reproductive so it puts up a seed head um, then the, the endophyte is also going to put up um, what's called a hyphae. Um, it's kind of like a little spaghetti thing that goes up into the seed and is actually going to infect that seed. And that's how the next generation of plants become infected as well. And so we're going to also see a lot of ergovaline production in that seed head because that's where we're concentrating um, production at that time. Okay. And so what we'll see is really high levels in the base of the plant. We'll see high but not as high levels in the stem and the seed head. And we'll actually see the lowest levels of ergovaline concentration within the the leafy middle of the plant. So between like 3 and 8 to 10 inches or so. So when we talk about management, you know, a lot of people have heard, we've been preaching it for decades now, that the first thing you can do is mow your pastures and remove those seed heads. And that's a very effective way to reduce the ergovaline concentration in the overall pasture. However, if we mow too much or if we graze too much, we're forcing horses to graze in that bottom two inches of the plant. And that's where we actually see more ergovaline than on the flip side, which is the top side of the plant. And so it really takes good pasture management to make sure that we're grazing right in the middle and we're not too low and we're not too high. We have to be right in the middle to have that lowest 
um, concentrations of ergovaline. That said, we're still going to see some um, some variation throughout the year, even if we keep it vegetative and at a good height. We're always going to see more ergovaline during periods of increased growth. So again, in the spring and again in the fall, we typically see less in the summertime, although it's very weather dependent. Um, and in the wintertime, we don't see ergovaline production decrease until we get a couple of really hard, heavy freezes. Um, so like this time this year, we have not seen enough um, of cold weather to really reduce that ergovaline production just yet. And so we're still seeing really high um, production. And in recent years, we've actually seen more production in the fall than we've seen in the spring, which is um, kind of a novel um, a novel thing. And we're not really sure if that's because if we have a lot more testing or if it's because of climate change or changes in management. My guess is it's probably a combination of all of those things that we've traditionally always been focused in the springtime. And now that we're looking at fescue more in the fall, we're realizing that there's actually a lot more activity than, than we initially thought. So does does exposure to the mare during any point of gestation, or is it just mostly because all the problems that you talked about are right around parturition? Yeah. So the, is that uh, is exposure just during that time important so, or all along? Yeah. So that's the million dollar question. Um, so the literature says that in the last sixty days or so of pregnancy, although there's not a really hard consensus, some some papers say thirty days, sixty days, or ninety days. So somewhere in that last couple of months of pregnancy is where we have a lot of documented evidence of fescue affecting pre pregnancy. We have a little bit less evidence of fescue affecting early pregnancy, and that can be either getting mares in full or maintaining that really early, you know, less than sixty day kind of pregnancy. So that's been documented, though not well. So we don't have a ton of information. We don't know exactly how much it takes, and, and that's sort of thing. The, the mid-pregnancy is where we truly do not have a good answer. So there is no literature that tells us that mid-pregnancy exposure is, is okay or not okay, um, but there, that's because there really haven't been studies that have looked at that, and so we simply don't know. Anecdotally, um, we feel like we're beginning to see more um, suggestive cases where there could be some mid-pregnancy exposure that may be affecting us later on. So I, I had a mare personally that I feel like I did everything right. I was testing my pastures. I moved that mare 60 days off of pregnancy. I fed very high quality hay. I did all the things. And if anybody in the world can keep a mare safe from fescue, it ought to be me. And yet she went three weeks over her due date. She had absolutely no colostrum. She retained the placenta for three and a half days. And it was absolute hell on earth, right? Mm -hmm. And there, and and I know that she wasn't getting fescue in that last 60 days. I know that with every piece of me, I know that. And so it makes you wonder if maybe that mid-pregnant exposure is more impactful than we initially realized. And that's something that I've seen on other farms. So it's not just mine. I've seen a lot of farms that have reported kind of similar things. It's like we're doing everything right in the time period that you say we need to be worried. So maybe we need to be looking further back in that time. So, so my recommendations are always worry about those last 60 days the most, but you should really be worried throughout the entire pregnancy. Gotcha. This sounds like something that's very difficult to avoid because you put your horse out on pasture, right? And being a fungal toxin, as a rule, very, very low levels are very, very impactful and can be very difficult to measure. So how do you go about testing your pasture and sort of seeing how much you have and what are the red flags as far as numbers go for the results that you get back? Yeah, so another really tough, tricky question. So so I'll answer the last part first. What is the number, the, the cutoff, right, for, for mares? So for late-term pregnant mares, the University of Kentucky has settled on about 200 parts per billion in total diet. Okay, so that's, that's a pretty low number 
Um, just for reference, last week I got a sample in that was at 1,200 parts per billion, so six times the, the threshold accepted value. However, that's in total diets. And so one of the big keys is to make sure that fescue is not the predominant portion of the diet. Um, and so having lots of other good grasses like orchard grass, like bluegrass, um, and like white clover are really beneficial. And then also feeding hay um, out in the pasture, in the stall, feeding grain, dry lotting if we have to. All of those things are options. So the idea is to get as many other things in the horse that is not fescue to try and dilute that. That said, there are certain times of the year that you will not be able to dilute it down enough. It's just it's just not possible and still have them on an average horse pasture. Um, so in that springtime when we're getting those seed heads coming up, we're seeing we're seeing numbers over 2,000 parts per billion. It's just not possible to get that diet down below 10% without removing that mare for a significant portion of the day or entirely. And so those are the times that you're looking at dry lotting, you're looking at grazing muzzles, um, and, and feeding really nice alfalfa hay, even though we have abundant grass growing at that time. Yeah, for the casual observer that's not really into the industry, they probably sort of think they're mowing the grass to make the place look pretty, right? Right. So you mow it, mm -hmm. and you take the seed heads off. How resistant is that toxin to deg degradation, right? Because if you mow it, and it falls down, mm -hmm. and the animal's still out there, does this hang around a lot, or does it break down pretty quickly? Uh, like the seed? Does yeah, it yeah the actual toxin itself. The actual toxin. <laughs> that's a tricky one. So in... Um, in hay material, so like if you cut the grass and you bale it into hay, it's actually very stable. Mm. Um, however, if you take a fresh sample um, and you put it in a bag and you take it to the lab, you can lose a significant portion of it by the time you get to the lab. So it seems to be that if it's in live tissue, it's very unstable. But if it's in a in a, in a dried and, and stable uh, material, then the toxin also remains fairly stable. So... To answer what I think you're getting at, I, I don't worry too much about when we mow the pasture and the seed that falls on the ground. Horses probably aren't going to dig around for that too much. Um, and so I don't worry about that a whole lot. However, repeated mowing, heavy grazing, those kinds of things, a lot of people think that they can eventually force out fescue in a pasture. And that is is pretty untrue. It's going to be very difficult to force out fescue with anything other than killing out a pasture completely and reestablishing it, which is why that is our number one recommendation for long-term pasture management is at some point you need to take out that pasture completely and reestablish it into safe grasses. What sort of cycle or, uh, or time length would you have to do that? Like you replant it, you have less um, fescue, you have less of the uh, fungus mm -hmm. um, endophyte in there. How long is that pasture going to stay clean when you actually reseed like that? Yeah. So the, the reseeding process, best case scenario, you're looking at about nine months that that pasture is going to be down. And that's assuming that the weather goes correctly, that your seed comes up as expected, um, and, and that you push it pretty aggressively. So realistically, you're looking typically more like a year. Um, I know some farms that take as much as 18 months to two years to fully renovate a pasture. If you reestablish that pasture in an orchard grass, bluegrass mixture, which is what a lot of horse farms reach for in this area, I give it about five years. Um, mm -hmm. And that's with pretty respectable management as well. So if you're going to graze it really heavily, I give you more like three years um, because neither one of those grasses are as tough as toxic fescue, right? 
Um, however, there is a new type of fescue on the market. I say new, it's actually been around about 20, 30 years, and the cattle market has been utilizing it much longer than horse, the horse industry has. And those are called novel endophytal fescues. And so what they do is they have a different endophyte in them, um, and that endophyte produces all the compounds that makes the grass tough, but it doesn't produce the compounds that are toxic to the livestock, okay? And so what that means is that grass is going to establish very well, and it's going to have a very long productive lifespan in that pasture. So I have farms that currently have pastures that have been established for 10 years or more with um, novel endophyte fescue. They are safe. We test them regularly, and they always have no detectable levels of ergobaline. Um, and they will survive between 10 and 20 years and possibly more if you manage those pastures well. So it's a, so how long that pasture lasts ultimately is going to be a function of how well do you manage it and what did you put in it. Um, and even under perfect management, uh, bluegrass is not going to live that long because it doesn't survive hot, dry conditions. And as climate change increases, we get, we get longer summers, we get hotter summers. They're more brutal, and it's really hard on bluegrass. And we are seeing a drastic reduction in bluegrass numbers across this area. Orchard grass, very similar. It doesn't survive close, frequent grazing or mowing, and that is how we manage horse pastures. And so you just can't maintain an orchard grass stand for a very long time um, in a horse farm. And therefore... That is, that's why novel endophyte fescue, in my opinion, needs to be the base of a broodmare pasture in this area. And then we continually add in the orchard grass and bluegrass and white clover and, and other things like that to kind of fill in those holes. So sometimes you'll hear about endophyte-free fescue. Yeah. Is that a real thing? It is a real thing. It is not a real solution, though. So officially there are three types of fescue or, or endophyte statuses within fescue. So there's toxic endophytal fescue, which we've already talked about. There's the novel endophyte, which we talked about was the safe version. And then there's the endophyte free, like you mentioned. So when we first discovered toxic tall fescue, then researchers figured out how to take the endophyte out. And that's how we came out with endophyte free. And so that's a plant that does not have the endophyte in it. It has no fungus in it. There's no production of any chemicals um, within that ergot, ergot uh, alkaloid family. And so those grasses are quite safe for horses. Horses do perfectly fine on them, so do all other livestock. However, they don't have that durability, and therefore they don't survive very long. And admittedly, a lot of people in the cattle industry and, and even in the horse industry kind of got a bad taste in their mouth because they were told, let's plant endophyte-free fescue. It's going to solve all your problems. And it did solve the toxicity issues. However, it didn't survive very long. And so what they found is that in four or five years, they were circling back and, and having to redo pastures again. And what they often found is that they were seeing toxic fescue moving back into those pastures. And they assumed that that meant the endophyte free was becoming reinfected. And that's mm -hmm. actually not true. What was happening is the endophyte free was dying out and toxic fescue that's naturally occurring, that's still in the seed bank that blows in from the birds or you bring in from your mower or your hay or anything else is getting reestablished into those areas. So while endophyte free was kind of the big push for a long time, it was a bit of a fad. Um, what we've realized is that it just doesn't have that long-term survivability. So I have a pregnant mare sitting on this nice green lush pasture in Kentucky. And you mentioned about, you know, who knows when this problem sort of starts. But I'm coming up to the end of gestation with this mare, getting excited about this foal I'm going to have. What's the first signs that I'm going to have a problem? Mm, I think the first sign is going to be a bit of that... Um, 
reduced uh, bag development, udder development. That's probably going to be your first sign. Admittedly, I'm not a vet. I work more on the plant side, um, but that would kind of be my first inclination. Um, it's really important what time of year it is. So if that mare is coming into foaling at the end of February, I'm not nearly as concerned about her as I am that mare that's foaling at the end of May. Mm-hmm. So I'm much more concerned about that. So time of year is very critical in determining how concerned we are and what we're going to do about it. Yeah, we see that on some of the farms, and some farms have had a problem where they've had to sort of take some mitigation activity on their mares uh, from a like a therapeutic standpoint to try to actually get them to come into milk production mm-hmm. and also placental issues as well. And Bart, you've probably yeah. dealt with these, yeah. Well, and what's what's interesting about it is it, it's so selective about which horses it hits because mm-hmm. you, you might have an increased problem, but it, all those horses are being treated the same. Some of them act totally normal. And then you you do have you have these mares that go way over that you can't get them to produce any milk and it's just it's interesting. So yeah, that, I think some of that could be one is is going to be like individual tolerance. The other thing is the selective grazing, and I always yeah. sort of wonder whether it's the dominant mares in the pasture that don't have the problem, or maybe they do have the problem because they eat down more. Is to sort of say whereabouts are they in the herd? You know, if they're getting pushed off the good grass, maybe they can detect the difference. You know, by the taste. I mean, who knows? Possibly, it, it makes yeah. you wonder because to, to mm-hmm. Bart's point, it's not a farm will have a problem, but it's not necessarily uniformly across all the mares uh, mm-hmm. managed in the same way. There is. There used to be a thought that mares wouldn't eat fescue, and there was a uh, the great Walter Zent tells a story of one of his mm-hmm. very diligent farm managers, and uh, who had been told, "Oh no, mares won't eat fescue." So this mare was a repeat offender for having a red bag. Uh, part tuition every year and so this particular farm manager followed this mare around for a couple of days during the grazing season and said this mare pretty much only eats fescue yeah. <laughs> and so very distinct differences yeah. between that and there in cattle is a, it has been documented there's a range of susceptibility to the alkaloids in fescue we don't have that data in mares yeah, yeah. so I, I assume it's a, like you said a range of susceptibility and then and probably different grazing habits of, mm-hmm. of the individual horses how, how i always answer that when people say oh do horses really select against fescue is my answer um i don't ever trust a horse to make a good decision in their life that, that just plain and simple, you cannot just assume they're going to make the right decision well, th- because they that's don't. That's what built the clinic. Right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, I mean, are there some horses that are probably more selective against fescue yeah. than others? Sure, absolutely. I don't like Brussels sprouts. Maybe you do. Um, but at the end of the day, if that's what's in front of them, that's what they're going to eat. And having walked thousands and thousands of acres, I can tell you the horses eat fescue quite readily yeah. and that you should not assume um, that a horse is not going to eat it, especially the good ones. The cheap ones might not, but the really good ones, they're always going to eat it. Yeah, with Brussels sprouts, it's how you cook them. Don't boil them. Don't boil them. But that is one of the frustrating parts about managing pastures for horses is they do, they, they only eat. I mean, yeah. I mean, it seems like my horses are in a 10-acre field, and they eat about an acre and a half, yeah. and the rest of it. They just run up and down the fence line, just turn it into mud. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but that's right. They they pick a spot and they just mow it right down. So they're getting right into the the danger zone that you're talking about that's getting right down there. So what is it about that particular spot on that pasture that they like? Does it taste better? So it does taste better. It's going to have higher, um, it's going to have higher sugar content, right? So it's going to, it's going to, seriously, it's going to taste better and it's, and it's fresher growth. So I think of it um, like chocolate chip cookies, right? If you have a fresh baked pan of chocolate chip cookies and you have, chocolate chip cookies that you cooked four or five days ago and have been sitting out, you're going to eat the fresh ones, right? But if the fresh ones are not there, 
I'm still going to eat the old ones because they're still chocolate chip cookies. But right? then that comes into sort of peck order. That Bart will push me away mm-hmm. from the fresh ones right. and I'll be eating the old ones. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> right, because he's the dominant place. mayor in the past. Exactly. <laughs> that seems obvious here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly right. I know but, my place. But that's why rotational grazing can help us. So yeah. if we so if we take your 10-acre pasture, for an example, and we cut it up into to four equal-sized pastures and we put them in, in the first one one, day, one week and one or two weeks later we move them to the next paddock and then the next paddock, they don't have have the choice to eat that same section the whole time right we have we force them to eat a new section and then a new section and they rotate around and around and so we take that decision away from them and we say okay now you're going to eat these cookies that are two days old and now you're going to eat these cookies that are two days old and we keep moving around and that's where we can get better utilization of our pastures um, and, and admittedly the cattle industry is very good at this so dairy cows really really nice cattle farms will milk their cows twice a day and they'll move their cows twice a day so every 12 hours those cows go into a fresh pasture now i'm not expecting every horse farm out there to go move their horse to a new pasture every 12 hours it's crazy but it is it is there's a very direct benefit for them right the best grass in front of the best cows makes the best milk and while it doesn't quite work with horses we can learn a lot from those industries that really understand that better grass is going to make uh, going to be more productive for them and it's going to be more productive for us it's also going to be safer for our horses so if i spell the pasture you, you've mentioned about moving around but if i had this pasture that was particularly um, hot with this problem i said okay we'll just spell it and let it dilute out is that a valid strategy or where's the flaws? No, you're really not going to get very far. You you might get a little bit of benefit because the other grasses are going to be able to fill in, um, or at least they have an opportunity to. Um, so you might get a little bit of benefit there, but you're really not going to get much of a difference. So um, we select for the most toxic fescue, right? So the horses, as they repeatedly mm-hmm. graze and graze, then the fescue that survives the best is the one that has the most ergovaline, for, for lack of a better way to describe it. And so as we graze pastures really closely, we are actively selecting for toxic fescue. So a great example of this is when I go out onto a horse farm and they say, okay, I want you to test this 20-acre field, and I want you to test this quarter-acre paddock right next to the barn that we put our blue hen mare. We put our very special mare in here because we can see her and we keep an eye on her and everything's great there. I can almost guarantee you every time that that little paddock is going to have much higher ergovaline numbers in it compared to that big pasture. And the reason is that that little paddock has been grazed much harder um, and it hasn't had, it, it's, it's had so much more selectivity to it that we're going to end up with really toxic fescue surviving. So um, we've already made those selections. So if we left that, left that pasture rest, then all we're doing is allowing that fescue to grow up more. The, the truth is that uh, there, are, there are short-term mitigation solutions. The only long-term solution to, removing, to, to dealing with fescue is to kill it. And that's yeah. just plain and simple. You have to kill it. Yeah. So where are we with uh, the research on this? I mean, this has been fascinating to listen to this. Um, where are we on the research? What avenues should we be going down? And how can we all get together as an industry and, and advance this? Not just for here, but everywhere, because... Everywhere there's fescue, everybody's going to have this problem. This is not a Kentucky issue. That's exactly right. It's not a Kentucky issue. And as, Chris, as Krista um, points out, we've got certain amounts of information that relate to certain periods in pregnancy, so mostly that last 60 to 90 days. And so that's where some research has been done. Dr. Karen McDowell, who just recently retired from the University of Kentucky, did some beautiful research uh, testing the novel fescue pastures that we um, jointly laid down at the university farm, and that was a way to really figure out that those that novel fescue was free of these toxic alkaloids. 
She also did some work looking at the effect of uh, toxic fescue on vasoconstriction as it relates to the uterine artery and the ovarian artery, but that was very early on. It's actually pre-pregnancy. So there's, as Krista points out, there's this big gap of knowledge. And one of the things that we struggle with um, at the present time is we don't have a biomarker for fescue ingestion. And we've actually been trying to source hot seed to perform a study where we can feed hot seed to geldings, for example, on a university farm that we know aren't going to suffer with that, the ingestion of that seed, and try and understand whether we can determine a biomarker for ingestion, whether that's in urine or in serum, because in cows, there is a urine test, it's just not validated. Mm. So Dr. Megan Romano at the Diagnostic Lab, with whom we work closely, we're interested uh, with working with the USDA, because here at the University of Kentucky, we're really lucky to have a USDA lab that is specifically researching forage. It's the Forage Animal Production Research Unit, and they have multiple researchers there that we work with looking at fescue because it's such a big problem in production animals as well as in horses. So this past year, we were trying to understand a little bit more about what, what might happen with the, with the umbilical vein. We're also trying to understand whether we've got um, the opportunity to find that biomarker because as Krista points out, one of the things we don't understand is what changes take place, for example, in the placenta and how long does it take for those changes to mm -hmm. take place to get that thickened bag, to get potentially even changes in, in signals. One of the concerns we have is we just don't know how long that process takes. In the food animal world, Dr. Jimmy Klotz, one of our uh, collaborators there at the USDA, he thinks that now we don't see the acute, severe fescue toxicosis in cattle that we used to see, you know, the bumblefoot, the severe summer slumps, the, gas, the dry gangrene. But what they think they see is a sort of a more of a slow burn, so chronic, lower grade exposure. And we don't actually have good handle on that. So we are trying very hard to figure out ways to, to understand that ingestion better because of that selective grazing. If we could pick up those mares earlier, we could, we could enforce those very tough measures that are required to truly dilute the fescue component in their diet. Because using something like domperidone um, as, as that antagonist product that we can use to try and help lift some of that um, suppression of, of milk production, we know it's not the answer to everything. It's expensive. You've probably all experienced the problem of losing milk from those mares mm -hmm. and not having colostrum, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. It's it's not the answer to this problem. Yeah, and I mentioned about like early signs before. Well, you know, you just picked up on it. If you don't do the pasture management or somehow get around this problem, yes, we can use domperidone to try to counter, and what do we have? And you talk about a product, right? Milk production with some species, our product is a foal. And so gestation's longer. That doesn't do them any good. The placenta is really thick and it's compromising the foal. And so there, there is no upside to exposure to this. And really, you've, you've got to try to prevent exposure because, as you quite rightly say, domperidone is not the answer that we would like it to be. It gets us out of trouble, but it doesn't fix everything. And getting back to what you're talking about pasture management, I can sort of see that maybe it is a bit of a slow burn chronic exposure in mares because you don't have the opportunity to do the pasture management you do in the cattle. So maybe that's why we see the, the problem manifest a little bit differently. 
I think one of the things that's been really exciting is um, Krista and her colleague Ray Smith going out to so many farms and running um, several workshops, including one that's coming up January 31st, which uh, you might want to mention a little more about. But the education process that Krista and her colleague Ray Smith have been engaged in, and obviously I pull them in and talk to talk about what they do with the, the people that I interact with is the, 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 the level of awareness, particularly amongst farms here in central Kentucky, where people are so very keen to do the very best thing, because this is a grass that grows, I mean, west of the east of the Mississippi, we have fescue and farms where Krista and Ray have gone out and helped um, that painful initial process of killing off a paddock. I mean, it just breaks our heart to see a brown dead paddock around here. But every one of them, if you have said, when the project comes to fruition, they're like, okay, which paddock are we going to do next? Yeah, no, nobody's ever regretted doing it. And they almost always get addicted to it. So if I can convince them to do one pasture, then the next year they want to do two. And, I, and I, I've got a farm this year that killed out 80 acres this mm-hmm. year in about 22 different pastures. Um, and, and they've got a plan to renovate their entire farm in the next 10 years. And it's, um, it's, a, it's a very addictive process. But once you see the impact they can have, not only on the, the, pr- the protection that you get from that fescue, but even just the increased productivity. So, so brand new pastures mm-hmm. are so much more productive. You put so many horses on them and they graze so well um, and they look so nice um, that, they, that people really see how much better it can be. And I, I think we get immune to the effects of fescue because we say, okay, well, we had one red bag this year. We'll get, well, next year we had two red bags. And well, this year we had three and we had a couple that didn't have milk production. Pretty soon we kind of accept that as the norm. And I've had a lot of farms that said, well, you know, we have like the standard number of challenges that you would expect in any given foaling season. And then they spend two years and they come in and renovate all those pastures and they call me up and they're like, we only had the vet out one time for 40, 50 mares foaling, like how, how, did, how is that possible? I was like, well, we didn't realize how much fescue mm-hmm. was really impacting us. And while it's maybe, maybe not good for the vet clinics, it's fantastic for those farms, right? And, it's, and that's what we're really after. So I think a lot of times it sneaks up on people and we don't realize how much of our foaling trouble can be attributed to fescue. Not all of it, for sure. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a lot more of it than we realize. Yeah, maybe there's a lot of subclinical losses we don't realize. Absolutely. Maybe we are suffering from like um, reduced birth weight in these foals, reduced viability. And we're just not picking up on it because, again, it's a fungal toxin and, and right. small amounts do bad things. And like pasture innovation is sort of like the new old frontier, right? I grew up on a dairy farm. Every so often we would just you know plow that field under and um, reseed it. Yep. And that's not something you really see people getting their minds around to get this horse pasture. So I've got to like manage that and turn it over like some production animal system yeah. would to try to improve the pasture for the horses because right. there's so many other things that people are concerned about. Well, and, and toxic call fescue kind of, kind of made us all lazy, right? So mm-hmm. it was, it was so durable that we didn't have to put a lot of effort into it to maintain having a pasture. And that's why Kentucky 31 tall fescue, the toxic version of it has been so, so predominant for so long is that you don't have to work hard at it to maintain it. Um, and it, it took us a long time to realize the, the effects that it was actually having on that livestock. And so we've lost that, that institutional knowledge, that generational knowledge about that we have to maintain those pastures and we have to turn them over occasionally, right? So so in Europe, that's a very common thing is to take out pastures every couple of years and restart them. And that's just not something that we typically do here, but it's something that's certainly catching on more and more in this area. And it's something that I preach to, to, to farms all the time. Um, I do it as well. I've got a pasture that's currently regrowing after I killed it out for the exact same reason, because that fescue um, was was too much. There's too much fescue out there and I couldn't tolerate it. Um, and to your point, 
knowing about the the cost to those horses, even if they survive, we might have the lower weaning weights and, and that sort of thing. There's also a cost, even if that horse turns out perfectly fine. So like my mare, for example, that foal was fine, right? But it cost me a lot more money to foal that horse out because of the issues that we had. And there's also an emotional toll to it. I cried tears over that horse, right? And that that's a real worry. So even if all you do is replace your pasture so that you can sleep better at night and know that you're not going to have to worry about those specific issues, to me, that's that's a very valid impact as well. So if somebody thinks they have an issue or they might, what's their first move? And how can people help advance the science? Do you want to start? <laughs> I'll go. Um, so we would like to try to communicate with people before they actually recognise they have a problem. So whenever we hear about a horse farm that might have a red bag, we say, hey, let's let's do some testing. At the present time, because we have this wonderful avenue of understanding what is going on during uh, particularly the winter season, where sadly we do see placentas and fetuses aborted um, that come to the diagnostic lab because obviously it's on everybody's doorstep and people are really diligent in bringing those animals in. We will try to communicate with those farms and say, hey, do you want to do any testing? Simply because that is a point when we can communicate with them, they have a problem. It does. We are not implying that that abortion is a result of fescue. It's a point where we have that contact so we can try to offer that to people. Going forward, we are trying to put together a, a little group of us who are, are interested in pushing forward since we have lost some of our, our researchers in fescue and that's that's been a detriment to us, but we're pretty motivated to move forward. COVID really messed us up a little bit in terms of uh, the ability to get seed, seed production, those sort of things really got um, slowed down in terms of our ability to do the sort of research that we had been trying to do. So going forward, we're actually with a colleague of ours, Dr. Siobhan Laux, trying to actually harvest little pieces of tissue from red bag birds because we would like to understand better from a, um, a, the perspective of doing maybe gene expression studies, but also histologically, the concern we think is that they may be a little more vascular. Well, if that's the case, we wonder whether that relates to chronic, maybe subclinical reduction in blood flow to the uterus. So to get money together to do that project, we're trying to bank the sample so we can apply for the money and move forward because everything relates to money. We've mm -hmm. got lots of different projects that we would like to do, and we have certainly some um, fields on our university farm that grow hot fescue, some that have novel fescue and everything in between. But those studies take a long time to do several months which is why they become so very expensive and that's why that mid-pregnancy from basically early pregnancy until 60 90 days is such an unexplored part of the gestational period as it relates to what that mare might be grazing and you hit the nail on the head as a profitability issue right so if you lose that pregnancy early you may ascribe it to something else but it may be this problem and if you have a late-term abortion and you may have half million dollar Oh, lying there on the ground, that's a loss to everybody. And so that's the way I would look at it, is that this is a significant impact on all of us because of the dollars that are potentially involved by these abortions. Because at the end of the day, what's your product? It's a healthy foal. Yeah. And you know, not to say what it does to the value of the mare should she actually lose that pregnancy. So what's your elevator speech if you happen to meet somebody and sort of say, what do you do? And I, I um, investigate tall fescue. What do you tell them between floors? 
Yeah, I, I tell them that my goal is to help farms better manage their pasture and reduce their exposure to tall, tall fescue toxicity. And I'm because I'm an extension, I'm very much that that connection between the university and those farms. And so my my first encouragement to any farm owner um, or, or, or or manager is you need to know who your county extension agent is. So a lot of horse farms are simply not aware that we have a county extension agent in every single county and that you can call them and you can ask them questions about their pasture, about your pasture, and they will help you do soil sampling and they will walk a pasture and help you identify grasses and weeds and all kinds of things. And they are they are kind of the front line of the university. And so the first thing you need to do is is get to know them and make sure that they get to know you and actually walk those pastures and see what you have um, and, and, and start there. So in other words, phone a friend. Phone a friend, yes, exactly. And then when they when when they have reached what they can do or we need more more information, then that's when they call me and we kind of go up the food chain. So is there any upcoming educational um, seminars for anybody that may be interested in this? Yeah, so this is a great time for it. So the University of Kentucky, in partnership with the Alliance for Grassland Renewal, is hosting the second annual equine and endophytes workshop here in Lexington. That's going to be January 31st. We're going to be at the Lexington um, Fayette County Extension Office. Um, and it's a $40 workshop. It's an entire afternoon. Um, and we're bringing in some really nice researchers and putting together a great program. Uh, we had over 100 people in the room last year. The room sat 110. Wow. So we were pretty packed, so we had to move to a bigger venue this year, and it's going to be a fabulous workshop. You can find information about that on the UK Forge Extension website or also on UK Ag Equine Program's website. Yeah, that's fabulous. Yeah, I'm always scared to walk across the pasture now on bare feet. <laughs> <laughs> Come walk with yeah. me. I'll point it out. There you go. Thank you. I know where to put my feet. Yeah, it's putting my it's still not the... Fescue that I'm worried about stepping on my bare feet. Yeah, there you go. Sage advice, but sage <laughs> advice. And that was stall side for this week. We've been with Dr. M. Adam from from Luck Research Centre and Crystal A. from Plant Science at UK, uh, talking about tall fescue and endophyte intoxication. See you next week.